Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6. We're in a three-week series in the book of Esther. Uh, last week we introduced you down to the, the conflict in Esther's calling to respond to the, the threat that had been brought against the Jewish people through Haman. So uh, to set Esther up before we read chapter 6, um, in the book of Esther we're, living, we're looking at the time... Um, after the Jewish people have been disobedient to God, warned of judgment and justice, and now been exiled to Babylon, and eventually taken over, Babylon's taken over uh, by Persia, and uh, we see uh, numerous kingdoms rise and fall after that, one of which is the, the kingdom of Ahasuerus, who is also known historically as Xerxes. And, and so that's the setting. It's before the life of Christ, several hundred years, probably four to five hundred years before the life of Christ. And there's this threat to the Jewish people. And last week we saw that Haman, who was a high-ranking official, had convinced the, the king to exercise a decree to wipe out the Jewish people throughout all of the kingdom, particularly because a guy named Mordecai, a Jewish man, would not bow down to him. And so we, we read that and, uh, and we saw that in the midst of all of that, God had been working behind the scenes, taking this woman, Esther, from the place of being an orphaned, woman, an orphaned Jewish exile and working her all the way into being the queen. And up until that time, there probably wasn't a real recognizable godly purpose behind it, but they, they began to realize that God was at work behind the scenes even before this threat to the Jewish people came along. And so Esther is positioned to do something, and Mordecai, who is her uncle, is prompting her to act and not miss her moment and respond to her calling, and that she would go to the king and she would lobby for the Jewish people. She would work to rescue them through asking him to turn this moment aside. And so we see this week, I, I, wanna, I want us to look at the life of Haman, this enemy of the Jewish people in the book of Esther, because in the midst of this story, we see this, this incredibly clear picture of how pride works itself out in our lives. And I want us to read chapter 6 at the heart of Esther today, just so we can see the way in which God puts that on display in this book. I'm going to explain it in a moment, but the setting for chapter 6, the setting for chapter 6 is that Esther has invited Haman to come to a feast with her and the king at which she's going to reveal that, that Haman is trying to destroy her people to the king. And, but he thinks he's being honored. And so he comes to the first feast and she delays in saying anything to the king until the second feast. And in the midst of that, that night, in the midst of the delay, we pick up with chapter 6. Chapter 6 says, On that night the king could not sleep, verse 1. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had previously had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for them. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the, the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. 
And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said, for the man the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden, ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, Take the robes and the horse, and as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered, and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Lord, we realize that the hardest place to see pride is in our own hearts. And so today as we consider the subject of pride and how it twists us, how it blinds us, we ask God that you would humble us today. That you would give us help from your Holy Spirit to be able to see the ways in which pride has its hooks in us. Lord, we ask that your word would be made clear to us and we'd see the beauty of the humility of Jesus who has rescued us and saved us. Lord, we pray that we would see that humility that has rescued us and we would aspire, Lord, to leave off our pride and rest securely in your hands with humility. So God, we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was reading through the book of Esther earlier this year, I was struck by the character of Haman. It's kind of hard not to be. And uh, the obvious ways in which pride had manifested itself in the life of Haman. And I remember then and there thinking two things. I thought, Haman looks crazy. I mean, he just looks crazy. And then I thought, second, this looks familiar. It looks familiar in my life and the life of people who are around me at times. We've, we're all affected by the temptation towards pride. And as the amazing events of Esther work their way out, Haman is at the center of them. He's the one that after being appointed to, the, to be the highest advisor to King Ahasuerus could not stand the fact that Esther's uncle Mordecai would not bow down to him. If you look up here on the screen uh, in Esther chapter 3, uh, it begins by introducing us by saying, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. He's elevated by the king. But in verse 5, we see that when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. And so in chapter 3, we see that his response then to this moment, of course, is not just to get rid of Mordecai, but to convince the emperor to issue an emperor-wide edict to have all the Jewish people killed. 
at least in part to hide the fact that he's infuriated by Mordecai while still knocking him off. So in chapter 4 then, we saw last week that through Mordecai, Esther discovered her her God-given design and calling to rescue her people from this situation. That she realized that her rise from an orphaned exile to the queen wasn't by accident and it was part of God's calling on her life. And we see her set aside her comfort, her safety, in order to pursue this calling and attempt to rescue her people and plead with the king. And as part of her plan, she in part appeals to Haman's pride. She invites him to an exclusive banquet where this conversation can take place with her and Haman and the king. And Haman, of course, expects that he's being honored and gladly goes. He thinks, how, how amazing, how right that I would be there, that I would be the one with this special audience. And it's not exactly clear why, but after the first night of banqueting, Esther still does not bring the issue up and simply asks for a second night and invites Haman again. And when Haman leaves the banquet, he's reminded of Mordecai as he exits the gate. And as he leaves the gate, he, he, he sees Mordecai there. He's, he's again struck with the fact that Mordecai will not bow. But he knows that his star is rising. In his mind, he's, he's favored by the queen. And so he goes home bragging to his family about the favor that is being shown on his life. And so his family gives some advice based on that pride and sort of feeds into it and tells him, well, then go ahead and don't wait for the slaughter of the Jewish people. Go ahead and just build gallows and tell the king to put Mordecai to death now. And so he does Exactly that. And so with that completed, with the bad advice of his family and friends, Haman is so eager to go and convince the king to hang Mordecai that he's waiting around the palace court where the king lives in the middle of the night just waiting for his chance. So there we are at the beginning of what we just read in chapter 6. We find out that the king can't sleep and he's reading the books in the middle of the night. And who's hanging around in the court so excited to continue his work? Haman is. He's just hanging around out there. It's kind of odd, right? You know, imagine you're staying as a guest at someone's house and they're just like hanging around outside your door. You know, you're just waiting to talk to you. Or like this morning, waiting to print your sermon notes. So what happens then is we read in chapter 6, while Haman is lurking outside, he's invited to the king's presence and asked a question. He's asked this question, what should be done for the one whom the king desires to honor? And of course, he doesn't know what's been going on inside. And of course, Haman assumes that the king is talking about him. And he says, who out of all the kingdom, who would the king delight to honor other than me or more than me? And so Haman assumes the king is talking about him. And he goes about describing his best day ever, right? And we find out that Haman's best day ever is actually to have the glory of the king. To have the honor of the king. We see this in Esther chapter 6, verse 8 and 9. Beginning in 7, it says, Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. 
and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. But see, what Haman doesn't know is that while the king had been having trouble sleeping, he was reading the annals and records of his past year or so and came across the reminder that Mordecai had in fact earlier saved his life. And he asked the obvious question, what has been done for Mordecai to reward him? And now as Haman has come in and he's answering this, he thinks he's being honored, but it's Mordecai who is actually being honored. It was Mordecai the king wanted to honor, and now Haman would be the perfect, high-ranking, noble official to be sent to carry out his best day ever in honor of Mordecai. Oh, sweet irony, right? And then, and then what happens, what we didn't read, if you go on in chapter 7, then that night, after honoring Mordecai all day, he returns to the feast that Esther had invited him to. She reveals the plot Haman had arranged to kill the Jewish people. And as Haman throws himself at her in desperation, the king assumes that he's trying to assault her and he has him executed immediately on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. I mean, it's an amazing story of pride, isn't it? I, I honestly, when I read it, I think, like, this is divine drama. This is divine drama being played out. I mean, you cannot write a better story than that that would get at the heart and picture of what pride really looks like. And so through Haman, we see how pride manifests itself in the life of an individual. And maybe God will be gracious to us to see the patterns of pride in our own lives as we reflect for a few moments on the way that we see it so clearly in Haman's life. And maybe he'll give us the strength to turn to him today for rescue and healing from the damage that pride can do to our lives. So let's think a little bit together about how we see pride specifically manifest itself in Haman's life and how it's a pattern of the way that pride works itself out in us. The first thing I noticed as I thought about this whole storyline in the passages is that pride fixates on the honor we don't receive rather than the honor we do. Pride fixates on the honor that we don't receive rather than the honor we do. If you, if you want to see if there's pride in your life, you'll, you'll see it this way. Pride, like other types of sinful motivation, is never satisfied and it never stays contained. When we're introduced to Haman in chapter 3, it's clear that no one other than the king himself has a higher position. He's just been honored. He's been elevated to a place that is higher than any moment in his life previous to that. And he is unable to rejoice in that simply because of one particular person who won't give him honor. You see, this is what pride does. It tempts us, it draws us into fixating on the honor that we don't receive rather than seeing the ways in which we've been elevated beyond what we deserve. When we're full of pride, we spend most of our time fixating on the people who are not as impressed with us as we are with ourselves. That's what it looks like. One of the ways you can identify pride in your life as if you commonly and constantly give rent in your mind, in your heart to those people who are just not crazy about you and you forget about those who do encourage you, who lift you up, who strengthen you because you just can't stand the fact that there's someone out there 
that doesn't see you for what you see yourself as. The reason this is the case is because pride builds its life around a mirage of self-sufficiency that it has to keep up. You see, pride is a, a matter of being puffed up with something that really isn't there. Pride builds its life around the mirage of self-sufficiency and self-advancement that is threatened by any sense that there is something greater. Tim Keller says, Pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. And listen, and when our life is puffed up with pride rather than built up with substance, it only takes one person with a needle to deflate the whole thing. That's the way pride works. Pride fixates on the honor we don't receive rather than the honor we do. Now, the second thing we see in, in Haman's life is that pride insists that others must be sacrificed so that we can be honored. The way it works out in our lives is we begin to elevate ourselves. Then there are people below us that we are allowed to climb over to get a higher view. You know, with Haman, this is obvious because he's fine killing a whole slew of other people so that his position of prominence in his own heart and before the eyes of the people that are around Mordecai can be lifted up. It doesn't matter to him that all throughout the kingdom these people are going to be destroyed. This is another way we can recognize even pride in ourselves. Pride produces in us a willingness to live a life with a string of casualties behind us as long as we keep advancing. These are people that we deemed less valuable than our own tender ego that we were willing to walk over in order to get where we wanted to go. Sometimes some people just have to get hurt on the road to progress. That's what pride sounds like. Because pride insists that others must be sacrificed so that we can be honored. For the prideful, relationships are a commodity. They're a commodity for building ourselves up. And when the relationships no longer serve the purpose, they're able to be tossed aside and climbed over. So if you look at your life and you see a number of casualties of relationships behind them as you made your way and forgot about people who cared for you, it's a pretty good it's a pretty good way of knowing that your life is fuller, more filled with pride than you expected. So we see that. And then we see a third thing is that pride tempts us to make enemies of the wrong people. Pride tempts us to make enemies of the wrong people. Haman, of course, doesn't just leave casualties in his wake, but we see that he makes the entirety of the Jewish people his enemies throughout the empire. They become his enemies because they remind him that his own visions of greatness are nothing in comparison to the God that they serve that he's actually dependent upon God for the very life that he is using to puff himself up. Do you ever find yourself rejoicing over the failure of other people who have never done anything to you except for exceed, succeed in ways that you'd hope to? Let me say that again. Do you ever find yourself rejoicing? Maybe just a little bit. Nobody does it outwardly, right? Vicar, I mean, nobody is celebrating outwardly about this sort of thing. But maybe you've done what I found myself at different times in my life experiencing. Someone who had been more successful than me in any category, I, find, I found in myself this 
sense of pleasure when they failed. When all of a sudden they were pulled off their pedestal and seen for what they are. My hopes are maybe, maybe then I, I don't have to remind myself that I fall short. And part of the way of lifting myself up in pride is being able to see others fall. See, pride tempts us to making enemies out of people who we have no business being enemies with. Through comparison and envy and rivalry and strife. strife. Pride lulls us to feel threatened by others. And they become in our hearts like enemies because they rep represent some sort of threat to our false views of greatness. It happens in churches, doesn't it? I'm sure plenty of time, at least in secret ways, it's happened in our church. It happens in churches at times when others are recognized for something that we're not recognized for and we want to make sure other people see that we're also doing it and worry that we've been forgotten, become even bitter, dissatisfied that we've been forgotten. It happens at work when a coworker succeeds and gains a claim and we think, I'm better than that person. I should get that opportunity. Before long, we find ourselves not rooting for that coworker, hoping that their life turns into a train wreck. I mean, maybe I'm alone facing these temptations. It happens in homes when our siblings are celebrated and we're tempted to despise their strengths and how God has dispersed gifts to different family members in different ways and we begin to covet the gifts that other family members have. And before long, we find ourselves not only despising their success, but hoping for their failure. And pride produces enemies from any place that reminds us that we're not at the center. Fourth thing we see is pride causes us to anticipate honor where none is forthcoming. Pride causes us to anticipate honor where none is forthcoming. We see in Haman what pride does to all of us. It blinds us into believing that everyone must see our greatness. And we constantly anticipate that we're about to be honored. Our day in the sun is about to come. And even when they're, have you ever been in an awards event where they're giving out awards, right? And you think, this is mine. They start talking about somebody in their work and how sacrificial and selfless they've been. And they've achieved above their fellow laborers and other people around them. And you think, I just can't wait. I'm listening to hear that beautiful name. And then it's someone else. This is what pride does. Of course, Haman is, the, I mean, there's not a better picture of it than Haman. Two really colorful scenes remind us of this. The first one, he suspects that the king wants to honor him, voices his elaborate desires to have the sword of honor that belongs only to the king. And then when he's convinced that Esther has invited him to the banquet out of favor. Pride does this. It causes us to anticipate that we should be honored because we come to think so highly of our own contribution to everything and everyone around us that we're convinced they must see it as well. Which causes this weird sort of disappointment all the time. The disappointment when the honor is not given. Lastly, in Haman's life, we see that pride attempts a rescue in a situation that really calls for repentance. 
Pride attempts a rescue in a situation that really calls for repentance. We don't really know in chapter 6 what it is that, that Haman is hoping to accomplish by sort of rushing, to, or in chapter 7, we didn't read it this morning, but in chapter 7 what happens is when he's exposed at the banquet and things kind of go crazy, the king is angry, he runs out, and, and it says that when he comes back into the room that that Haman has approached Esther and is speaking strongly and falls on the couch where she is sitting. And he's attempting in some way to rescue himself. He's been exposed and he's attempting this rescue in a a spot where what's really called for is absolute repentance. Because pride always believes I still have a chance to control this situation. Maybe nobody else could get themselves out of this bind, but I can. And I'll figure it out. And pride always looks upon its own resources to pursue the kind of rescue that is needed. And pride attempts a rescue in a situation that calls for repentance. And so Haman is ultimately killed because the king thinks that he's assaulting Esther. And he's put to death And in a situation that called for humility and repentance, Haman had none. You know, over and over in the scriptures, we're warned about pride, aren't we? If you know the Bible, it comes up often. We're warned of the problem of pride in Proverbs. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 15.25, The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. Everyone who is arrogant, Proverbs 16, 5 says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And the warnings, they just keep coming in Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 18 and 19, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And then we're even warned that we should be careful not to surround ourselves with prideful people lest we fall in with them to their destruction. It's better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. But I gotta say, we just don't really believe that, do we? Better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoils with the proud. Something in us says, I wanna be dividing the spoils rather than trusting in the Lord. Proverbs 29, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Proverbs just reminds us over and over again, but we're also then told that despite initial appearances, God will deal with the proud. One of the clearest passages is in Isaiah 2, where Isaiah reminds us that God intends to deal ultimately with pride in a day of judgment. Isaiah 2, 11 and 12 says, The haughty looks of a man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Have you ever thought about the fact that the Lord has set a date? You see, this is what we miss sometimes, right? When we're tempted to be the one dividing the spoils with the pride rather than being with the lowly in humility is we forget that the Lord has set a day to judge the proud. And he says here, the Lord has set a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up 
and it shall be brought low. I mean, I'm not sure there's hardly anything in all of Scripture warned against with stronger words than pride. Verse 17 says, The haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The book of James sums it up with the clearest word about pride and our clearest invitation to humility when it says in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And the truth is, we have all exhibited the fruit of pride in our lives. There isn't one of us here today who hasn't been tempted in one or all of these ways and given in at powerful moments to the dangerous pull of pride. Our lives have been littered with envy and bitterness, with anger and rivalries, a lack of contentment that are all really rooted in believing that we deserve more than we're getting. Whether it be honor or material possessions or favor from God as we see it. This sort of fruit is described by Paul in Galatians 5.20 as the fruit of the flesh rather than the fruit of the Spirit. And where this is the primary fruit on the tree of our life, we are encouraged to consider that maybe we really have never been changed by the power of Spirit through the gospel of Jesus. We've exhibited this fruit, when you think about it, we've exhibited this fruit because we believe something about ourselves. We believe that our lives are built and sustained on our own effort. And they're sustained on our labor. And we have labored to promote and position ourselves ahead of others, away from threats, rather than serving others. Because we don't trust that God can raise up the humble and that He opposes the proud. We've been blind to our own failures and believed that we're without pride. We've been blind to our own weaknesses and thought we need to be honored more. We've worked to convince ourselves and others of our own effectiveness because we're convinced how effective we are. We're convinced how great we are. We want them to see our composure, our control, our skill. We've anxiously worried as we toil to keep our lives together and been threatened when we see others seeming to do better. Pride marks that are everywhere. And all of this reveals a temptation to believe that we are the central, most important factor in our lives and that God is not a trustworthy father. That God is not powerful to deliver on his warnings about pride. God is not a sure foundation on which we can rest our hope. I want you to know this morning Pride will destroy your life. It'll make your story look like Haman's story. And right now, you might be in the middle of a season of success where you're being lifted up, where you're being exalted, and you, you've convinced yourself that you're finally getting what is deserved. And you need to convince yourself you're getting way better than you deserve. That all the glory belongs to God. That every gift that you have received, every breath that you take, belongs to Him. And anything short of acknowledging it is robbing glory from God. But I want you to know this morning that there's hope and good news for the proud sinner. 
for the prideful sinner. Maybe today, as we've been walking through these words, the Holy Spirit has shot an arrow into your chest about your own pride. I want you to know that there's hope for the prideful sinner because our trustworthy Father has sent us a humble Savior. Philippians 2 describes this beautiful humility of Jesus as it invites us to a life of humility. As we see that Jesus deserved all glory and honor, but didn't think of it as something to be grasped onto. But he made himself low and he took on the form of a servant. And when he describes the form of a servant, he means our form. He took on our form. A servant, that's how God sees us. He has made us to be his servants beneath him so that we could participate in reflecting his glory rather than robbing it. And Jesus takes on the form of a servant. And it says not only did he take on the form of, of a servant, but being found in the likeness of men, he humbled himself. So it was humiliating for Jesus to leave off his glory and take on our form. But even then, having taken on our form, he humbles himself further, even to the point of death. That's how Jesus lives out the calling that really belongs to us. He humbles himself so that he could lift us out of the dungeons of our pride. Where we think we've been exalted, but we've really been lowered. He lifts himself all the way down to the bottom. He presses his life in humility beneath the most prideful sinner. So that as his cross is raised, there is hope for everyone who would turn from their pride and trust in the humble Savior. Jesus humbled himself so that proud sinners like you and me could be invited to repentance and forgiveness in Christ. And all the grace that we need, all the grace that we need to flee from pride, to trust in God, to rest in him, to not take our own lives into our hands and, and do things that are contrary to who God is and to trust him, everything we need, all the grace is present in Jesus who humbled himself and now has been exalted through the resurrection and has ascended to the right hand of the Father, has all power within his strength to oppose the proud and give grace to the humble on the day that God has set. I want you to know this morning there's hope for proud sinners. So we are invited to leave our pride and come to our humble king and through faith in him alone we're freed. We have our eyes open. We see the beauty of his humility through which we have been saved. And you'll never trust God to live a life rooted in humility and service to others. And service to God where you see your life is small and his is great. You'll never trust him for that. Until you see that you're, you've been saved and forgiven and redeemed by a savior who brought himself low for you. He brought himself so low to sacrifice his body on the cross and pay for our sins of pride. With nails piercing his hand and piercing his feet. Where we have sought after honor... Jesus laid it aside to save us. While we thirsted for more recognition, Jesus experienced our rightful rejection at the cross. Instead of sacrificing others so that he could be honored, 
Jesus sacrificed himself so that we could share in his glory. Instead of through pride making innocent people his enemies through the cross, he makes guilty people his friends. And instead of looking forward to his own honor, he rejoiced to think of us being raised out of the dishonor of our sin and being made children of God gathered around his table. And he did it for the joy of our rescue that was set before him so that we could be saved. This is our humble king. This is Jesus in all of his humble glory. And God has exalted him through the resurrection and will exalt him eternally. And all those who have come to him in trust and faith, who have rooted their lives in his promises, who have humbled themselves with him, turn from their sin and rest in his deliverance, will know the joy of his exaltation. And we will be raised with him. And I want to ask you today, is that the hope that you're resting in? Ultimately, for some of you, today needs to be the day where you hear this about your life and you realize you've lived entirely in sinful pride apart from God and God has been gracious to you to provide a Savior in Jesus and He is inviting you back today through repentance to trust in Christ and be made new. to Have your eyes opened. And the Bible says anyone who calls on this Jesus for this salvation, he responds to, he comes to, and he gives new life by his spirit. He transforms prideful hearts into humble servants. And he can do that for you today if you'll come to him, if you'll call out to him. But we also know maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a number of years and you see that in many ways there are still just places in your life, in your heart that have never really internalized the truth of this message of the gospel where pride still rules over that portion of the land of your heart. And Jesus today is calling you out of that area to return to him and trust in humility that his way is better. That being with him, the lowly servant, is better than exalting yourself in pride. And so in a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to remember the goodness of Jesus' sacrifice and his humility for us as we receive the broken bread and the cup of his poured out blood. That is a reminder that he has served us to bring us back into relationship with God. That reminds us that instead of through pride making innocent people his enemies through the cross, he makes us guilty people his friends, his family. And so we gather around a meal today because Jesus has invited us out of our pride to rest in what he has done through his humility and to glory in it and celebrate it. And if that's your testimony, we invite you to join us in a moment as the elements are passed out that you would take the bread and the cup and you would remember Jesus with us and celebrate that. All of you who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never put your faith in Christ, we would ask that you let the bread and the cup pass. But I just want to appeal to you, we're going to have a moment here where we hear a song as things are passed out. This is a time for all of us to reflect on how God has spoken to us in these moments from His Word. And it's a time for you that you can reply and respond to God, that you can call on Him for salvation and hope. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for today and we thank you for your word. We ask God that you would take even these words, these thoughts, and that your Holy Spirit would be bringing them into personal reality in our lives. Lord, we want to hear you speak into our lives. 
as you apply this to us, as you stir us to fresh obedience. Lord, I pray for any who are here who have never trusted in Christ that today they would turn from their pride and humility. They would seek forgiveness. They would seek renewal at the cross of Jesus. Lord, we're thankful that we have that hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.